Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's Monday, the 4th of October. I'm Stuart Lohman, and you're listening to the Biz News Power Hour. On the show today, we get investment insights from SASFIN's David Shapiro. My colleague Alec Hogg chats to Lord Peter Hain on trying to get South Africa off the UK red list. He also chats to Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Advocacy Group and James Ball, the global editor at the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, where they have a chat about the dirty underworld of the tobacco industry. And as usual, we get some global insights from our partners at the Financial Times. But first, here's my colleague, Jared. I'm Jared Neves, and you are the most accessed stories across business platforms. On our website, biznews.com, the DA joins list of parties willing to support Cape Independence referendum. Brutally honest Robert Hersov is the hero we need, that's a piece by Sebastian Chatov. And there are 1.4 million voters in the Western Cape who support Cape Independence, says Phil Craig. On Biz News TV on YouTube, Rob Hersov remains popular with both parts of his speech at the Biz News Investment Conference, receiving plenty of views. Following those two videos are Investment Insights with Magnus Haystick. On Biz News Radio on Spotify, our most popular podcasts include... Commodities Counters are a no-go, featuring Magnus Haystack. Historic moment as Cape Town Stock Exchange rings the opening bell for the first time. And Rob Hersov, this is our government. If they destroy in the country, vote them out. For these and other stories, head over to biznews.com. Here's Claire Bardenhorst with your Biznews Flash Briefing. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Following several attempts at lobbying by South African businesses and the government, the UK has finally agreed to remove SA from its controversial red list. The changes, which are expected to be announced on Thursday, will mean that travellers would no longer be expected to quarantine for 10 days in a hotel at their own expense of over 40,000 rand. According to The Telegraph, South Africa will also be joined by Brazil and Mexico as those countries that will move to quarantine-free travel in time for the October half-term break. President Cyril Ramaphosa met with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson to discuss the issue last week, as it was estimated that South Africa's already battered tourism industry loses over 20 million rand for every day that it remains on the list. The UK is not only a significant trading partner, but also South Africa's greatest source of tourism from the Northern Hemisphere. If South Africa were to be taken off the red list, travellers would only be required to take a COVID-19 test three days before travelling to the UK, even if vaccinated and quarantine at home or at their destination for 10 days if not fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated travellers would not be required to quarantine. Trading in shares of China's debt-laden property group Evergrande was suspended on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange today after it missed a key bond interest payment last week, its second offshore debt obligation in a week. Evergrande is China's second largest property developer, and with liabilities equal to 2% of China's GDP, the group has sparked concerns that its troubles could pose a threat to China's financial, economic and social stability. However, China's central bank has vowed to protect home buyers' interests. Multinational chemical producer UPL Limited faces a criminal probe after it illegally stored hazardous chemicals in a warehouse in Durban that was looted and set ablaze during South Africa's week of social unrest in July this year. The Indian producer of chemicals used in agriculture allegedly did not have the appropriate permits, and dangerous chemicals were released into a residential area and a river system, resulting in fish dying, beaches closing, and complaints from residents about air pollution. Minister of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment, Barbara Creasy, told reporters that the National Directorate of Public Prosecutions 
will make a decision on whether or not to pursue criminal charges. I'm Justin Roberts, and this is the Market Report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 64,100. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 95 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 36 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 39 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,752 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is stronger at $82 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 715,000 Rand. In the financial news, the JSE, the financial services firm that operates the largest stock exchange in Africa, says remuneration disclosures should apply to all companies, not just publicly traded and state-owned entities. The boss's comments comes as the government on Friday gazetted the company's amendments bill for public comment which among other things seeks to compel companies to disclose the wage differentials between executives and workers. This contentious proposal specifically targets listed companies and state-owned entities. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, October 4th, and this is your FT News Briefing. A war of words over the IMF's managing director could come to a head this week, and a top Deutsche Bank official tells the FT that good compliance can be painful for business. Plus, what do you get when you combine gene editing tools like CRISPR with YouTube? A whole bunch of biohackers. If you think of the mad scientist in his garage who's kind of blowing himself up, guys operate off-grid because they just have a compulsion to do it. Our Alphaville editor, Isabella Kaminska, met some amateur gene scientists and shares some of their concerns. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The board of the International Monetary Fund will meet this week to discuss allegations against the IMF's managing director. Kristalina Georgieva has been accused of manipulating data to favor China while in her previous role at the World Bank. A report commissioned by the bank's board found her responsible for falsifying scores in the 2018 edition of the bank's influential Doing Business report so that China could move up in the rankings. Here's the FT's Jonathan Wheatley. It has been very, very widely followed. Governments put huge pressure on the World Bank every year to evaluate favourably their attempts to reform. It's actually used an awful lot by foreign investors who are thinking of investing in a country. And if a country climbs up the rankings or scores very well, then it is viewed as a better investment prospect for direct investment. As people I've spoken to during the reporting for this story have said that billions of dollars hang on it. Jonathan, what could this mean for the World Bank's reputation? I mean, the investigation was done by a prominent law firm, Wilmer Hale, and that says a lot, right? Well, Mark, there's a, there's a lot to say about that. But basically, um, the implication, the suggestion, actually the, the quite compelling evidence from the Wilmer Hale report is that those numbers were being manipulated. The big implication of that is you can't trust World Bank data and as the report suggests that Kristalina Gurgieva was involved in that, if that's true, and I can't stress it enough, she absolutely denies it, but the, the noise that's out there is that if that's true, then can we trust numbers at the IMF? Um, and certainly, I spoke to uh, quite a few people at the IMF serving members of IMF staff now since this came out who are saying we feel that our work has been undermined. So, Jonathan, what are we talking about in terms of severity here? Could Georgieva lose her job? And, you know, what would this mean more broadly for the IMF? Well, that's the big question. I mean, that's what everybody's looking at. I mean, there have been several high-profile statements of support. Kristalina Georgieva, many people would say, has had a fantastic pandemic. She has taken the IMF and kind of um, turned it into another development institution. Her critics would say... That's one thing. The Wilma Hale report is a separate thing. And there we're talking about governance. We're talking about cooking the books. I quoted one uh, senior economist in, in the private sector saying, you know, at the end of the day, you don't cook the books. And if you do, you have no role in policymaking. And a lot of people are coming out of the woodwork and saying, I mean, just look at the comments under the stories that we've been publishing in the FT, saying that she has to go, that she should at least step aside while the investigation is ongoing. 
But no, she's coming out fighting. Jonathan Wheatley is the FT's Emerging Markets Correspondent. Thanks, Jonathan. You're very welcome. Pleasure to talk to you. Deutsche Bank has severed relationships with a very small number of wealthy clients with criminal records. This follows the arrest of the late disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. The bank's chief administrative officer, Stefan Simon, told the FT that after Epstein's arrest in 2019, Deutsche Bank conducted an internal analysis looking for, quote, other cases of clients who were onboarded in the past but should be viewed differently today. Epstein was already a convicted sex offender when Deutsche Bank took him on as a client. Simon is overhauling the bank's compliance. He stressed that banker mindset was the key to avoiding legal compliance risks. He told the FT that, quote, if in doubt, we need to say no to clients and transactions. We have heard a lot about computer hackers, right? Now there's a new phenomenon, biohackers. These are amateurs and academics who are using gene editing tools like CRISPR in self-made labs and, at times, on their own bodies. The FT's Isabella Kaminska spoke to some of these garage gene scientists and joins me now. Hi, Isabella. Hi. Isabella, tell us a little bit about Paul Dobrova, the amateur scientist you met. Um, what kind of experiments is he doing and, and what motivates him to do this? So he's a really interesting character. Um, he kind of uh, reached out to me months and months ago, trying to flag my attention to this growing problem of amateur scientists. He himself is a sort of jack of all trades, polymathic type who is interested in a broad range of uh, different disciplines, but biology and microbiology and all this stuff, he's very entirely self-taught. And um, so he has been sort of telling me about how easy it is for, you know, he does it just for fun. Um, he likes to make uh, beer glow and it's all really accessible these days because you can buy these kits off the internet. And um, he has been learning as a result, just in the spirit of trying to kind of, I, I would call him more of like a penetration testing type of mindset. Uh, if he can do it, then anyone else can do it. And so um, that's where his sort of compulsion came from, was just to sort of see if he himself could do these things. And he contacted you, not just to tell you all the things he could do, but to, to let you know about his concerns, even national security concerns. Uh, what are they? So I think one of the biggest ones is just the fact that the cost of all the materials is falling and things like DNA synthesizers are, are really easy sort of uh, to get hold of. Then once you've got one of those, um, the door is open to all sorts of experimentation. And so he was sort of taking me through how easy theoretically it is. You can sort of download a sequence pretty much in, in some ways, like you would download your photographs. So, so you would upload the digital information to one of these service providers who would then send you a sample of the sort of DNA based information in, in a sort of vial, which could then be used in lab experiments. Now, that is not a live virus, but it is the means by which you could end up producing a live virus uh, if you have have the know-how. Anyone who is sound of mind is not going to be doing these experiments, uh, you know, in, in their kitchen without taking precautions. But um, if amateurs can do this, his concern is simply that somebody who is more bullheaded about it or has an agenda, say a, a nefarious agenda, and the means and the access to capital to get this done can definitely accomplish much greater things. And that really is the concern on, on the security side. So Isabella, scientists, amateur biohackers, they say they can be more innovative if they don't have to deal with the bureaucracy that comes with securing funding. What do you make of that argument? Well, I think, I think you know, what I've learned from this whole process is that science is a compulsion. They are natural tinkerers and they will tinker with stuff irrespective of whether you say you shouldn't or you shouldn't. Um, and this is really in the spirit of innovation and in the, in the history of the great sort of scientists throughout the ages who have pushed, you know, humanity forwards. If you think of the mad scientist in his garage who's kind of blowing himself up or even sort of on the more uh, scary side, like a, like a Frankenstein type figure. And if you are sort of free radical type, you're not necessarily very good at following orders or putting in grant requests or, you know, dealing with a lot of bureaucracy. But the big difference is that I think bio, in the biological field, because of technologies like CRISPR, the access to some of the uh, technology and to what they're 
they can achieve and the consequences of that and how the viruses they're working with, whether they're contained or not, the consequences are much potentially much more fatal because, you know, if a scientist blows himself up in the lab, it's a fairly contained accident. But with a pathogen, of course, as we all know now, the potential for it to spread, you know, in a chain reaction across the world is 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 massive. So going back to Paul Dabrova, um, does he have any idea about where this could lead and how biohacking should be controlled or or managed? Right. So there are different views on how to manage it because you don't want to stifle the innovation. Um, it's so important that that continues to happen. And so Paul Dabrova's idea is that you should, you know, we need to effectively stop this um capability from becoming a poor man's nuke because that's what it is it has the potential to kill as many people as a a nuclear weapon but it's simply the comparative cost is so much lower like you know to manage a nuclear uh submarine or a nuclear fleet uh, a nuclear arsenal is is a you know billion trillion dollar enterprise right whereas to create a biosafety level three lab, you know, the costs are just much lower. Isabella Kaminska is the FT's Alphaville editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Business, and with me for today's Market Insights is Sassman Securities' David Shapiro, David, all roads lead to China again. Evergrande shares have been suspended in Hong Kong without focusing on that particular situation too much. What determines sufficient grounds for a stock exchange to hold trading in a particular security? Um, I I think in this case, it's almost certain that they're going to default. And in that respect, they want to control perhaps the the price of the share. I mean, it's already down 80%. But I think uh, probably creating panic and panic setting. So uh, there has to be reason, but I think it's valid reason. Probably the, the, the Chinese will also perhaps manage the process. I think what they do want to do is protect those people who have probably paid for properties and are not going to get them rather than bondholders who normally who take a risk. You know, when you, you invest in a company and you buy a bond, um, that's what happens. So, um, I think I don't think they're keen that they, they, they uh, want to protect the people who invested in it, but rather the the people who did lay out money, bought you know, have bought apartments or bought homes, and are not going to get delivery. So I think they'll probably manage the completion of a lot of those uh, projects, handing them out elsewhere and so on. But it's an ugly situation. It's been an ugly story, and and China suddenly is becoming a bit of a drag on people who have invested there. You know. It was supposed to be the the leader. You know, this was going to to um, open up new avenues for us, new areas. And suddenly, they're saying, "Do we you know, do we really need this? Uh, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How do we handle it?" You know, tough. David, there's so much focus on Tencent just as a result of Naspers and Process exposure to that particular company. But Alibaba, another tech giant in China, down 55% from its highs just a year ago, trading at an all-time low. Has the hammering of Alibaba and other Chinese tech giants such as Tencent and Baidu, do you think it's been overdone or do you think there's merit given all the uncertainty coming from the Chinese government? Probably overdone in terms of the results. And, and I think I've been saying, oh, let's wait and see what the numbers are like. But the whole mood has changed, and that's what worries me. Um, the authorities are clamping down on every element of Chinese life. You know, and, and what I'm scared of, it's going to take away any kind of flair out of business people. They get scared to step out of line in case uh, they're, they're chomped on or uh, you know, stood on or tramped on. So my big worry is that how, how are you going to recreate the Chinese flair that led to Tencent or led to Alibaba? So you might recover. They might, you know, I, probably the young kid in the street there who's earning a decent salary is still walking around uh, with, a, with his, um, you know, with a phone, uh, purchasing things online, using all the applications, playing games and so on. But I think overall... 
the business community must be very nervous, scared to talk up. That's what's worrying me. It's, it's uh, you know, where do we go to now? Are we going to see these businesses, the Didis, the Pinduo duos, the Meituans, you know, all of those have been, have, have been attacked. And, and, you know, are they going to expand or is that expansion going to be controlled? So, yeah, I've, I've got a very uncomfortable feeling at the moment, having been a big Chinese supporter or, or, or a Chinese market supporter, I'm suddenly saying, hold on, let me, perhaps we should start looking somewhere else or, or at least reduce it to, a, a, you know, almost an option type level. David, I've been seeing recently in the news this active versus passive argument. Mm. It's always been there, but it seems to be particularly topical on the, at the moment. I've read a lot of facts coming from the passive side. Empirical evidence seems to suggest that most asset managers don't beat their respective benchmarks after fees. So what then is the argument for active management? Uh, well, you can create your own benchmark. You know That's what we all do. So you create a benchmark that's easy to... I, I, it's, it's, I wonder if we've got enough time to really go through it. But um, what, what I concern, what, what concerns me, um, yes, there is a place for passive management. You know, for, for people who want to invest in the market who don't really care about it and, and couldn't care where the money is. Uh, a fund manager comes or a salesperson comes and sells it to you. But for a large number of people who are interested in their investments, to sell them kind of these passive investments, they begin to lose touch with what's underneath there. And I promise you, Justin, I am not exaggerating. I've had clients with not a huge amount of money who've been exposed to something like 3,000 to 4,000 different underlying investments in those passive investments. You know, and at the end of the day, it's only 100 odd that really determine their wealth that account for 70%. So, um, so, so what I like to do, you know, clients of mine like to know, what do we own? You know, yes, you own Apple, you know, you own Amazon, you own ASML. So with them, it gives them a feeling of identity. You know, that, that, that part, they understand what makes up their wealth. And for me, it's, uh, for me, that's very important, you know, that they do that. And yes, you know, the, the search for those companies that are going to outperform the, uh, the indices is always one of the reasons that I'm attracted to the market. You know, there's nothing there that bores me more than a unit trust. You know, or a, <laughs> can you imagine if, that's, if we spend all our time just talking about unit trust? You know, we'd go mad. We love to talk the stories. We love to talk about businesses. So, yeah, you know, for me, that's the appeal. And uh, reading about businesses, reading about companies, reading about successful ones and maybe failures. David, I tend to avoid questions on individual companies and rather focus on themes. I know you've been very bullish on the large cap growth names, particularly the FANGs in the US over the past few years. Is this a theme that you're happy to stick with? Or would you say they're more attractive thematic opportunities in the market right now? You know, I always ask the question because... We talk long-term, but we think short-term. <laughs> you know, we always talk, oh, we're in there for the long-term. But yet, every five minutes, we're discussing the companies. And I keep saying to myself, uh, is this the highest price Amazon's going to reach? <laughs> is this it? <laughs> Are they never going to go higher than that? Are they never going to increase their profitability? And I keep saying, no, that's nonsense. They're a huge business that's going to keep on growing. One year they might grow at 20%, the next year 15, 10. It doesn't matter. Sometimes the share price runs ahead, sometimes it pulls back. So I'm saying, yes, we could go through short-term uh, issues. But for me, it's still a dominant company. It's still a vibrant company that's, that continues to reinvest in its own growth, in its own, um, you know, its, its own brand. And uh, so from my point of view, I still, those are the questions I ask of every company we own. If I can find better ones, yes, then I'll dump those for what I think are better companies. But, but you know, I, I think we're so quick to get rid of and try to trade our way on. These are great business. So ask yourself the question, you know, when you say, am I still holding the fans? Well, at this stage, people are still watching Netflix. I don't own Netflix, but they're still watching Netflix. They're still... Every night they still click on there. Yeah, sometimes, you know, they might not get as many subscribers, but <laughs> still an incredibly good business. So I'm happy to hang in. 
Agree, David, and I'm one of those Netflix watchers. Oh. But just back to the active passive argument mm -hmm. for a second. You've called the tech heavy theme very yeah. correctly over the past few years. Why wouldn't you advise to clients to own ETFs that gain exposure oh to that sector rather than holding the individual names? You know what the problem is that if I could find ETFs that were concentrated, very focused, then I'd go for it. In other words, and I'm finding that in the health sector because the health sector is very hard to call. We don't know, is it Pfizer, is it Merck, is it Eli Lilly, who? We don't know who the winners. We know they're going to be winners. In that case, I bought ETFs and I go for ETFs. In the local market, I go to ETFs. But I'm saying, so that's very important. But I like concentration. So I want an ETF that's got no more than 20 stocks in it. You know? But what do I do? I find an ETF with 150 stocks or 200 stocks. So I say to myself, what are the top five or 10 in that ETF? Okay, I like that. Let's go for that. And, and that's, that's my problem is that the ETFs become too widespread. They, you know, they cover too many areas. So I would like an ETF that is, that is very, very focused on, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 odd companies. So that's my passive argument. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Lord Peter Hayne is with us. Great friend of South Africa's, and you're doing it again, Peter. Uh, the big issue here in South Africa at the moment is being on the red list for the UK, which is a fantastic source of tourism for the country, but at the moment hasn't been so. So you've stepped into the ring. Yes, I've been asked to write to the Prime Minister, which is what I've done to Boris Johnson, urging him to reverse his decision and uh, take South Africa off the travel red list. That decision was made a few weeks ago, and it seems to me that it has no justification in science whatsoever uh, for all sorts of reasons. South Africa, contrary to the information given by the British government, where they gave a reason for keeping it on the red list, was the prevalence of the beta variant. But that hasn't been in existence since uh, August. It's been overtaken by the Delta variant, the Indian one of COVID, which is exactly the same as we have in the UK. Uh, it is also dominant here and in most parts of the world. Um, and what also surprises me is that actually South Africa's infection rate per 100,000 residents is a tenth of the one we have for COVID in the UK. So it just doesn't stack up. And they've taken countries off, um, like Turkey, for example, which has a much higher infection rate and a soaring one. And uh, Britain seems to be standing in a kind of odd limbo because the US, France, Greece, the Netherlands, other European countries uh, have all allowed travel to and from South Africa, but, um, uh, but Britain isn't. Is it, is it all politics? And I ask this because Kenya has been taken off the red list. And indeed, if you'd like to go to have a safari now in Africa and you are British, you can go to Kenya and go straight back home and carry on with life. Yet in South Africa, it's going to cost you at least 2,000 pounds of isolation in one of the government-designated hotels. You're in the House of Lords. You've known, you've been in politics your whole working life. Is, it, is that what's behind this? Well, I don't think... Who knows, Alec, because this decision... It doesn't stack up in any way, scientifically, politically, economically. For instance, you know, the South African tourism industry receives more visitors from Britain on safaris and enjoying the wonderful country and the coast and so on than any other part of the world. And there's a lot of British jobs involved in that travel. So it doesn't make sense. 
and the travel industry here is up in arms about it, um, along with the, the travel sector in South Africa, which is such an important part of the economy. And they've removed eight countries from the red list, uh, Boris Johnson did on the 17th of September, yet three of them, I mentioned Turkey, but also Sri Lanka and the Maldives, have higher and rising rates of infection in comparison with South Africa. So I've sent him a detailed letter, um, about 1,500 words, uh, on information that I've received, and, and I've put it into an argument that says, look, you've really got to reconsider this, because it's unfair, it's unscientific, and it is hitting jobs uh, on a massive scale in South Africa. And it's also, by the way, having collateral damage on travel business jobs in Britain, airlines and so forth. There's something else that's interesting. According to Discovery, 80% of South Africans have already been infected with COVID-19. And certainly the latest research that's come out has said that natural immunity is far stronger than, than vaccinations. But outside of that, a big percentage of those who would be traveling to the UK, and of course, UK people themselves have been vaccinated. So it's almost like, you don't want to say bulletproof, but a big slice of South Africa's uh, likely uh, a pop, well, population and likely travelers both ways are about as protected as it, it possibly could get. So I, I share your bemusement. Yes. I mean, you make an important point. Uh, Discovery, I think it's South Africa's largest health insurer, says that around three quarters of South Africans have now been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. So developed and it means the countries, and by the way, that three quarters compared with just a fifth of people in the UK, which means that actually South Africa is developing a, a more naturally acquired immunity a higher at a higher rate and at a greater level than Britain and other countries, uh, because vaccines don't pr provide protection on their own. They diminish the impact if you happen to catch it um, substantially the science uh, and the evidence shows, but they don't provide protection on their own. So this level of immunity through uh, contact with COVID that South Africa's inquired, three, acquired, uh, it seems, three quarters of, of your citizens compared with just a fifth in Britain, is also another reason why it's safer to visit. Um, and as you say, double vaccinated uh, UK citizens like myself and my wife who wanted to go on a safari and had one booked in August. Um, we're unable to go without spending nearly £2,000 sterling. Multiply that by 20 and you get the, the level of rent involved. It's just prohibitive. And it's killing jobs and it's, it's, it, it's, it, it's preposterous and it's unscientific. So what are you hoping to achieve with this letter to Boris Johnson? Well, letters to prime ministers always get read, and without being presumptuous or immodest, letters from former cabinet ministers like myself and uh, former House of uh, members of, and members of the House of Lords currently, but especially as a privy councillor and a former cabinet minister, there's a protocol in government that the prime minister will read your letter, even if he doesn't draft it for the reply. And so there is a good chance that this will be receive attention at a high level. And if it doesn't, I'll raise it in Parliament, as I did some years ago over corruption and money laundering under former President Zuma and the Gupta brothers. Um, so I hope that um, this will kickstart a rethink within government in Britain. I sent the letter yesterday afternoon. He will have plenty of time uh, to digest it, and his officials will have seen it already, um, uh, already, you know, many hours ago. Uh, so when uh, the, the, the letter is released publicly on Friday, um, today, then um, I, I hope it will receive uh, the attention that, that, it, it, that it, it should, because the summer peak season for South African tourism is, is about to be on us. And this is when... Um, when the opportunity should be taken and should be there. If I thought that South Africa was really in a bad place, 
you know, in some cases, apart from our higher rates of vaccination, uh, a worse infection rate in Britain. If I thought South Africa was in a really bad place, like other countries are, then I wouldn't have done this just because I'm a friend of the country, because that would be pointless. It just puts people in at risk. Um, but it isn't. Uh, and it's uh, it's actually in a better place than most countries. And if you compare it with Kenya, you know, Kenya has been taking off the off the red list and good luck to it and its tourism industry. We don't want anybody to be penalized in Africa above all. Uh, but South Africa has a much better testing regime than um, Kenya, a bit, much better than anywhere in the in on the African continent. So that's another reason uh, to give South Africa um, uh, this, you know, to take it off the red list. And of course, South Africa also has a a, a world class genome testing uh, and tracking and tracing um, uh, a system, so that the country is able to check if there are new variants, if the mo if the variant is muta mutating in a way that could um, uh, threaten even vaccined, uh, double vaccine citizens. So, you know, on every box. For taking the country off the red list, South Africa seems to tick it, and yet Boris Johnson's government has unaccountably and inexplicably, and ludicrously, in my in my view, kept it on. Do you think it's incompetence, perhaps? And I, I ask this because there has also been a campaign uh, headed by David Frost in the UK on behalf of South African tourism to try and, and get government to wake up to this. I think they've got to the 100,000 signatories, which forces the government to have a look at it. And there was quite a lot of hope in this country when the last change was made to the red list that the country would be taken off. But, of course, that didn't happen. So is it often we look at conspiracies when 90% of the time it's to do with incompetence. What would your reading of it be? Yes, in this case, uh, unless there's something that I'm having the, the the wool pulled over my eyes about, I think it's, if I could use the phrase, more cock-up than conspiracy. Uh, I don't know why. I, it is inexplicable. Nobody in the industry understands why. Um, so we'll just have to hope that there's an uh, an urgent reconsideration. I understand that scientists from both countries met recently the other day uh, if that's the case, and if British scientists are actually confronting properly the evidence that South African scientists and experts are providing them with, then let's hope they brief their political masters. Uh, because I don't, I don't think that there's any malevolence here. I can't believe that because they're British jobs at stake as well, and they're British citizens who'd love to travel to South Africa, by the way, including me, but leaving me out of it. I'm not doing this for self-interested uh, reasons. I'm doing it because I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's wrong of the British government to behave this way. I'm in a position to influence the British government um, as well as anybody with the exception of the president in South Africa. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, there was some big news on Friday. Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Group. When we spoke last week, you were explaining that you were in the process now of a major political party in the Western Cape, that's the Democratic Alliance, to ask whether or not they would support a referendum. How did that meeting go? Yeah, good. Well, we asked all of the political parties, to be fair. So we, we were producing an election guide for, for independent supporters. Uh, and uh, as part of, of, of producing that guide, we contacted all of the major political parties and asked them the answer on two questions. Do they support Cape independence? And, and regardless of whether they support it or not, are they willing to allow the people of the Western Cape or would they support the people of the Western Cape uh, being consulted by a form of a referendum to determine whether they wanted Cape independence? Um, and obviously, you know, given that given the political circumstances of the Western Cape, uh, the, the DA is the, the party of provincial government with the most critical one. Um, and uh, the DA, along with seven other parties, uh, confirmed that they were now willing to support a referendum on Cape independence, even though actually the DA at this point in time don't support Cape independence outright. 
What was the meeting like with the Democratic Alliance? Who exactly did you see? Probably in terms of, of, of what happened at the meeting probably isn't for us to tell, I think, if, I, if I'm fair. I mean, but, but I mean, you know, we engage with, we're a political lobby group first and foremost. So we have regular communication with, uh, with as many of the political parties as, as, as we can in the Western Cape. That includes, includes most of them. And we have relatively regular contact with the, with the DA and this formed a part of that process. You know, this wasn't a single conversation. You know, it, you know this is part of discussion that are, have been going on for, for some time. Um, and the DA themselves have alluded to that at times in the press. I mean, clearly there's 1.4 million estimated voters in the uh, in the Western Cape who support Cape independence. Uh, more than that, who support a, a referendum. Uh, the majority of the DA's own voters uh, both support Support Cape Independence and a referendum. So it, clearly, it's you know entirely logical that the that the Cape Independence movement would engage with the, with the DA on a fairly regular basis, and we do. So you're not going to tell me who you met with. No, <laughs> but but I mean, look. We, so I think from our point of view, we we, we yeah we're hundred percent covered. I personally w- w- was involved in 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 that discussion. Yeah, we've made a a public statement that we that we absolutely stand by. We've reached this agreement with the with the DA. Uh, I think if if they want to to declare details of what was said, I think that's you know that's their prerogative. From our point of view, what we wanted to be absolutely sure uh, was that there was going to be they were willing to support a referendum on Cape Independence, um, and that we could communicate with that. With, with with our supporters, and we are one hundred percent confident uh, that we now uh, that that's that's the arrangement with the, with the DA, uh, and we've communicated that to uh, to our uh, our supporters, and, and we absolutely stand by that. Given the DA's official stance of not supporting Cape independence, it seems a little unreal that they now are at least allowing the people of the Cape to make that decision. I think it's a good question that you asked, actually, because I think uh, our perspective would be something other than that. And I think people have in some ways been taken taken unawares by this uh, and uh, and therefore perhaps uh, are struggling to find the context. But actually, the, the, you know, the DA since 2016 have been heavily pushing the devolution of powers um, that in the 2019 uh, manifesto uh, the, that they pushed even even more significantly for, for devolution of power to the Western Cape. Uh, we have seen that they've led a, a debate in, in the National Council of Provinces two weeks ago on devolution. Uh, they have uh, brought a private member's bill before Parliament uh, to fix the referendum legislation. So I think, you know, when you put all of those things into context, it's absolutely clear that the DA want to devolve powers and significant powers to the Western Cape. Um, and, uh, you know, whilst, whilst they still want to try and save South Africa and therefore haven't come as far as us who are pushing for outright independence, Independence. Uh, clearly, you know the, those the, the, those um, uh, principles uh, are, are, you know, are are very very compatible with each other, and I think this is a logical conclusion. And I think it would be quite extraordinary for the for the DA to support devolution of power to the Western Cape to fix the referendum legislation, so they could consult with the people of the Western Cape, and then have a question such as as, as independence, where fifty eight percent of people in the province and sixty five percent of their own voters want a referendum on Cape independence, and they do all of this and then not give a referendum on Cape independence, uh, you know, I think that would be far more remarkable. Um, so, I don't, so I think this really should be entirely expected of people. I just think it's that people for so long have written Cape independence off as impossible and a joke and uh, that, that all of a sudden we're here. And, and for those that are sort of more intimately involved, you know, that, that, you know, this has just been a very, very logical process, growing support, more and more parties coming in, more and more organisations coming in. I think that you know, really this shouldn't have support anybody who's up to speed. Uh, but for those who kind of sat on the sidelines and just dismissed it as, as, as nonsensical, and, and sort of a pipe dream, uh, then this probably is the, is the rude awakening, that this is the, the sort of point where you realise, hang on a second, a referendum on Cape independence is going to take place. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you've always thought this is a pipe dream, that probably does come as quite a shock to your system. The research that you did has been criticised. Well, I suppose not criticised, but in ignorance, people are saying, but who did you talk to? How, how scientific is the research that 58% of uh, people in the Cape would like a referendum? And I think this all forms a part of the Kant narrative. I mean, for certain people, Cape independence is unthinkable. Uh, they can't imagine that it would do it. So therefore, anything that we do as, as an organization is going to is going to be criticized and scrutinized. And that's fine. We don't, you know, we certainly don't mind that you expect to be scrutinized. Um, as an organization, you know, we, we, 
are really fact based. We really don't ever make outrageous claims. You, you know, people can go back and, and, and see. You know, we, we aren't given to sort of uh, silly stories and so on. We're very, very serious about what we do. And um, in terms of the research, you know, it was independent research. We commissioned victory research. You know, it wasn't a, a cheap exercise. Uh, we, we, we've done it twice. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've published the sort of the summaries of the, of the results. So I think nobody that really understands how polling works, uh, is, is, is criticizing this. Uh, the, the DA certainly aren't criticizing this. They certainly recognize the validity of the results. Um, but there's always going to be people shouting from the sidelines who just don't want this to be true. And that's, that's particularly what we we see, um, and there's not much we can do about that. We uh, we can we can produce the thing. We can say, listen, this was the methodology. This was the company that did it. This was the results. Uh, yeah, if people choose to to dismiss that, then uh, then that's fine from our point of view. The, the key thing for us, and, and actually our our raise on detra in the first instance, our first obstacle as an organisation was to obtain a referendum on Cape Independence, and and we've we've obtained that now, or we've effectively we've now put ourselves in a situation where that now is a certainty, um, and uh, therefore we're very very happy. And, and you know, we want people to celebrate with us. Uh, for 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 those that uh, that that don't want to celebrate with us and don't want to believe it, then obviously that's their prerogative. We don't have to convince everybody. We just have to wait for the referendum. And obviously, our our uh, our focus will then switch onto other things. Uh, part of which will be winning the referendum. Um, and then obviously, there's going to be an interim period now between between this announcement uh, where we've been pushing for a referendum, and uh, now whereas an organisation, you know, we'll, our focus will now change from winning a referendum. Um, to to sort of pre- preparing the, the Western Cape for the referendum, if you like. When is it likely to be held? Well, so there's so many ways you can only speculate because no nobody knows what's going to happen in terms of the the, the referendum or the the electoral uh, commission amendment act, which the DA are bringing before Parliament. Nobody knows what the passage of that bill is going to be. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm told f- uh, from the DA that they expect it to be at the committee stage in November, um, and I think therefore uh, you know we'll see what happens. We know there's been overwhelming support in Parliament in terms of public comments, an extraordinarily uh, large amount of public. Comments comments um you know we don't at this point in time know how the anc are going to react to that bill and we obviously saw comments over the over the weekend or friday i think from from uh, the ex-finance minister tito mbuini um who uh, you know who who who, who uh, weighed in on this on on twitter which caused quite a bit of a bit of a stir and and had and that did get a very uh, positive and robust response from the from the da i think the the most noteworthy comment was was helen zilla's comment that basically said well look you know if the if if we've got a a a, a people who are um aren't voting for the da then actually and the, the sorry that they aren't voting for the da and there's a failing state uh, that actually there is a responsibility for those people to to, to sort of rescue themselves and, and not allow themselves to to, to to go down with the ship um so i mean all of that was was was, was positive but i mean we what we don't know is how these two factors are going to play out so i think whether this goes through parliament fairly easily uh, or whether actually it doesn't uh, will will we'll determine that and of course we now know that Afri Forum have weighed in and said that they uh, uh, that, that they intend to bring a, con- a constitutional court um, application to force Parliament to to pass a bill, uh, uh, which effectively I guess will end up being this bill. Um, so, but eighteen months is is, is probably what I, what I expect. I, we're kind of expecting a referendum in about eighteen months' time, uh, but that is that really is sort of educated guesswork on our side, rather than some specific timetable that we have that nobody else has. For great wines at the right price, delivered direct to your door anywhere in the country, look no further than the BizNews Wine Shop. Go directly to www.biznewsshop.com for a quick, easy solution to curated wines with the BizNews community front of mind. South African tobacco industry has uh, had its share of problems over the last little while, but they're nothing compared with what's now occurring. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism, based in the UK, has had a team looking into shenanigans in the local industry for the last 18 months, and they've come up with a series uh, that is being podcasted called Smokescreen. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the Bureau's team collaborated with the BBC in producing a half-hour episode on the South African tobacco industry 
which went out on the BBC's prime current affairs program, Panorama. Here's a little taste of what Smokescreen is all about. So historically in South Africa, the tobacco market would have been controlled by uh, British American tobacco. So for the longest time, they controlled effectively more than 90% of the, the local market share. British American Tobacco, or BAT, is one of the world's biggest cigarette companies. They make brands including Pall Mall and Lucky Strike. But then along came smaller companies trying to cut themselves a slice of the cigarette market. And BAT wasn't too happy. So when their market share is under pressure to the extent that it was in South Africa and continues to be in South Africa, I think there's every incentive for them to play dirty. Smokescreen tells the story of how one woman, Belinda Walter, brought BAT and its network of informants to its knees. Within the first day that we had met, she disclosed to me that she had actually been uh, assigned to infiltrate me as a spy. But Belinda wasn't just a spy. She was a double agent. I'm providing this regarding particularly my historical relationship with British American Tobacco UK, BAT, for the purpose of seeking immunity in the event that aspects of the relationship are found to be unlawful and to provide a full disclosure in order to finally close this chapter of my life. She was working for both BAT and its competitors, feeding information between them. Since about October 2010, I was a covert agent, informant for the State Security Agency. My identifying number with SSA was known to me as 5332. If anyone found out that BAT was spying on its competitors, there could be massive consequences for the company. What I want you to know is, firstly, our arrangement is purely above board this side and everything else, and it's purely above board that side. Um, because it was for, which is not illegal, to pay you for information in exchange of all the good information and the criminal activity which was then subsequently passed to the South African authorities, yeah? Yeah. So there's no, there's no nefarious activity on our part here. He is aware that you got payments from us. How? Someone had started talking, and BAT was backtracking fast, trying to convince Belinda that everything was above board. Soon enough, everyone that Belinda knew was being pulled into the investigation. I had UK guys in my office all morning until now. My UK friends? No, government. Okay, are they gonna F up BAT? Yes. Welcome to James Ball. Uh, James, you've been busy putting together a podcast on a very South African story. How did you guys get involved in this? It's um, We've got a tobacco sort of reporting team who've been looking around uh, all sorts of issues across the companies, things like Juul and the sort of US scandal around there um, and other things. And anytime we were sort of talking to people in this area, they kept saying, have you heard about this South Africa story? Have you heard about BAT? Um, and sort of various garbled tellings of it. You know, no one was quite saying the same thing when they were telling us about it. And it just became sort of too intriguing not to dig into. Um, and so we sort of started looking into it about a year ago, thinking we could probably do something quite self-contained. You know, there was quite public uh, sort of whistleblowers and figures on it. And then it was just one of those where you start pulling on a thread and before you know it, we've got miles and miles of yarn. Being investigative journalists and indeed being an organisation that's based in the UK, there had to be a British angle to it. And you did mention BAT or British American Tobacco, one of the major companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. Is that what really piqued your interest? In other words, that it wasn't just a purely local South African story, but uh, much bigger? Exactly that. I think 
you know, the, the South Africa side of this story is, you know, sensational. There's, you know, double agents, you name it. And there's also this sort of network of informants and payments being made. But it doesn't stop just in South Africa. It clearly moves into neighboring countries and other countries uh, across the continent, actually. But what was also interesting to us was this wasn't the case of just one man or woman on the ground or even half a dozen of them. What intrigued us was, is there a paper trail that takes this back to the global headquarters in London? And, you know, as as we're uncovering in the podcast, there actually, there, there seems to be, you know, people actually who were quite senior in BAT knew about some of the tactics being deployed by their agents on the ground. They were authorizing the payments. They were often finding ways to send the money that were quite uh, questionable. And so it definitely, you know, a lot of the story takes place in South Africa and it's it's certainly more a South African story than anything else, but it really does have international implications. What has BAT's response been? So BAT, it should be said, deny any wrongdoing. They point to the fact that in the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has looked into this and decided not to continue its investigation. Um, although we would note the S- that doesn't mean the SFO thinks there's nothing there. It suggests they don't think there's enough evidence to pursue something. They also say that these kind of intelligence efforts, you know, recruiting informants in the tobacco industry, which could be anything from quite senior executives in their rivals to someone who works on the factory floor in packing. They say that's about preventing smuggling and that's part of them being responsible citizens. Um, The question that's asked is how much of this is really about stopping smuggling, which I think most people would agree is a perfectly legitimate end, and how much of it is about sort of stifling their competition or monitoring their competition. So it is a podcast. It's the first time that the Bureau has gone into this side of uh, broadcasting. What made you take that route? In other words, rather than just writing a a series in text, uh, to actually put together a podcast series, because it's brilliantly done, highly professional, and certainly it's a riveting listen. Well, there are going to be eight episodes in, in total. We've had three so far. Another one's going to be available this evening. What appealed to you about the medium? I think it was that there were so many characters in this story and so many sort of twists and knots that actually, you know, often when you're turning something into a new story, you smooth those out, you tidy them away and tell people the most important facts. And, you know, we teamed up with the BBC and put out a panorama episode. We've put out the written news material we usually would. But we think this is a gripping story. We want to be able to tell the fuller version of it. Um, You know, a panorama sounds like loads, but it's 27 minutes. Uh, We're putting that out every episode on this. And, you know, as, as we come to episode four, we sort of got a nice, clear goodies and baddies narrative from the first three episodes. Um, You know, you have uh, Belinda Walter, this woman who supposedly was representing the small companies, and then she seemed to secretly work for BAT as well. And she's sort of turned informant and is telling journalists everything that happened. And actually, episode four blows up a lot of this. She sort of seems to suddenly turn on everyone. She starts saying... Uh, There were sort of secret units within the fraud team. She accuses the journalist she's talking to of all sorts of false allegations. And so because you've got these twists and this difficult narrative and these big characters, we wanted to try and tell people a fuller story and tell people a narrative. Um, So it's very new for us, but we're hoping it makes for quite a compelling experience and it also tells the full story in a better way. I'm a huge fan of the Ted Lasso series on Apple TV. And you've also followed that format where you're not allowing all the episodes to come out and to be binge listened. Uh, like with Ted Lasso, we've got to wait for next week. In your case, we have to wait for the Mondays. What was the thinking behind that? Um, I think partly we didn't want to have written the end before the start of it sort of went out. 
things are still happening in this. We're still trying to talk to more people. We're still sort of doing this. So we're not sitting with all eight episodes in a, you know, in a safe somewhere. Um, episode eight still isn't finished. Um, and so it's nice being able to sort of do that week by week. We also sort of wanted people to get a bit compelled into the story. Obviously, people can jump in and read the background. There are books on this. There's all sorts. But we're hoping that, especially now that it's halfway through, we've got four quite bingeable episodes now, and then hopefully we can hook people to come back week by week. There's also it's a huge amount of work to do something like this. And so a week-by-week week schedule keeps us a little bit more sane than if we try to drop it all at once. And that's it for tonight's edition of the Business News Power Hour. From myself, Stuart Lohman, and the rest of the Business team, we'll see you same time tomorrow. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Business News.